Hey, everybody. I just wanted to let you know who is the sponsor for this week's show. So today's podcast is brought to you by Audible. You can get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com slash design recharge. I'm reading The Big Leap. I'm going to show it to you. Yes. There, you can see it maybe now. The Big Leap, I am about two hours left. Hopefully, I'll get that done. Anyway, it's really good. Again, I read books like this all the time. So I just wanted to let you know this is a huge way that you can support the show by going to audibletrial.com slash design recharge and sign up today. I also wanted to talk to you about another way to support the show. I'm super thankful for the patrons. Um, you get extra content, kind of like a design recharge part two. Those are all on the, the Patreon channel. And you can get extra content like that. Plus, depending on what else we're doing, we do meetups, group time together. We come together, we decide what our next challenge is, and we have our next two, or probably the next two challenges set, and we're ready to go. We meet before the challenge as a group and then after the challenge as a group to kind of see how it went and what we learned. I would love for you to be a patron. You can be a patron for as little as a dollar, $5, $19, and then it goes up from there. But I added um, Sean Ferguson's a couple weeks ago. His part two is waiting there for you at patreon.com slash Diane Gibbs. My favorite way to build websites, I'm finishing a website this week and going to be working on Recharging Use website with the Elementor plugin. You really use, you can use it with any WordPress theme and it just makes it so functional, so easy, so much easier than the, the new Gutenberg as well as to me, easier than any other plugin that is a drag and drop. So if you like to drag and drop, there's a free Elementor plugin. But if you like it as much as I did, I went ahead and bought this. I think it was about $200 a year. It's definitely worth it. And you can get that at bit.ly, B-I-T slash D-R Elementor. All right, on to the show. Today, we have... Mandy Horton for day two of Design Recharge History Week. So this is like up to, I don't know where it starts, but up to 1945. So let's on to the show. If you want any links, you can get them below where the other two episodes are going to live. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Design Recharge. This is a crazy week. We're doing Design History 1, Design History 2, and Design History 3. Today is episode 304. We're having Mandy Horton here. She is going to be delivering different kind of content than we normally do. She's going to give us, she usually does 16 weeks. She's putting into one hour for us for Design History 2. So Mandy... And she teaches at University of Central Oklahoma. I'll give all her specs later so you guys can make sure you um, can, can, can contact her. I don't know why I said it like that. Can contact her. All right. Mandy, take it away. Okay. So I think one of the things I forgot to mention yesterday was um, while we are covering things in history one, two, and three based on time, when I'm talking to you guys today about the content, um, we're not going to be doing it in a linear fashion. Um, you know, as I talk about things, I will talk about them as they progress through time. But at the same time, we're going to be jumping around a lot. 
So if you didn't pick up on that yesterday, hopefully you'll pick up on it today and hopefully that's clear. We're mostly hitting big ideas and not necessarily hitting every single thing as they happened. Um, so there may be some things left out and I'm sorry about that, but again, as Diane said, we're compressing a 16 week course into an hour. So this is definitely the Cliff Notes version. So I'm gonna go ahead and share my screen with you. And you guys can keep the chat open, and then if you have questions, I can get it. And I'm just glad to see Jeremy Slagle's here, Patricia McDonald's here, the Dan Marino, and then Ann Ford is here. So, Ooh, and just, I know. So, Ann's also a big uh, design history person, too. All right, here we go. Back. Okay, so history of graphic design, too. Um, so the, the time period here, once again, um, we talked about it yesterday, but let's go ahead and lay that down again for the newbies here today. Um, we cover the Industrial Revolution in this era up to 1945. So the Industrial Revolution, just to kind of set everything up, I'm sure you guys are all familiar with it, but it was basically, I mean, there was this huge impact on society where there was this major change from living um, based on agricultural way of life to an industrial way of life. So it changed how society worked, how society functioned, how people lived on a day-to-day -day basis. And it also introduced mass-produced goods for the first time. Also around the same time, the American and French revolutions happened. Um, so this was all just a very revolutionary time. And I also like to describe it as, um, so the American and French revolutions, they actually have a imp big impact on um, the visuals of the time because, um, you know, French had the monarchy. Uh, in America, we were, of course, governed by the English monarchy. And the monarchy had previously dictated a lot of the style. Um, so the Rococo style was inspired by the monarchy. And then as um, these both countries were breaking away from the monarchy, they chose to return to more of a classical influence. And so it was a much more restrained style. So that actually has an impact on the styles and the, the you know, the forms that were dictated at the time. But um, in addition to the Industrial Revolution, the French Revolution and the American Revolution, um, there was also a typographic revolution that was happening at this time. And this had to do with the fact that because there were things being mass produced, because um, people were buying things and selling things, um, they were advertising a lot. And a lot of, um, uh, you know, bills and posters were being posted publicly and they were overlapping each other and they needed to get people's attention. So how they did that is they started developing typefaces that were bigger they were meant for display. They were meant to get your attention. They were in your face. Um, and one of the first examples of that was the fat face style. Um, this is my favorite. I love the fact that they just that you just call this the fat face style. Um, it's one of my favorite things. So basically, you took a modern typeface like Bedoni, and you took the um, the thicker portions of that and really exaggerated those mm. into fat faces. And a couple examples of that, we have a Bedoni Extra Bold here, or I'm sorry, Ultra Bold, and Normandy. Um, one of the next steps was the development of Egyptian or slab serifs. So we call them slab serifs today. We have a question. Yes, I have a question. Um, where weren't these being developed? Were these in Europe or were these in America or where? Or does it really matter? Well, I'm primarily talking right now about um, in England and London. Um, so a lot of these are being developed in England and London, but they are making their way to America. 
we'll talk about a few that are, are very specific to America too here in just a bit. Um, and I'm, I am talking very generally. I would say most of these came up in England first and then made their way to the United States. But good question. Um, so again, we would call this a slab serif today. Um, but at the time, um, so a lot of things, Egyptian were being found and uncovered. They were, um, you know, they were opening tombs. And so the word Egyptian was just very much in style. So when they first started developing these slab serif fonts, they named them Egyptian. It had nothing to do with, you know, these fonts were not inspired by Egyptian hieroglyphics or anything like that. Right. It was just fashionable. Time period, so, right? Only? Exactly. So generally speaking, if you say Egyptian today, unless you're talking to someone who really is a typophile, they're not going to know what you're talking about. And slab serif is definitely a more appropriate term. So these are, of course, characterized by their, their very thick serifs. Often it's the same thickness as the, the strokes or the stems. Um, so that's, you know, it's a, again, it's a term to describe a, a bunch of different types of types. Ooh. One of the next um, categories would be the Tuscan style. And these, on these, they would take those serifs and they would really elongate them and stretch them and then make them really ornamental. Um, and they could vary quite a bit. We have two examples here. Um, but again, they could, they could be very, very different. Um, so these were very ornamental typefaces, something that we would associate today with probably like a Western theme, Western Or a style. circus. Or a circus, exactly, exactly. And we'll come back to this idea here in a little bit. Um, the next advancement was um, perspective or three-dimensional fonts. And so these were usually fonts that, you know, in the design they had a little bit of a, a drop shadow or um, source, some sort of um, definition which made them appear to be three-dimensional. Of course, they weren't actually three-dimensional. They were printed on a page, um, but they gave the appearance that they were three-dimensional. And then one of the last advancements in this typographic revolution was the sans serif, Ooh. or what was called the grotesque. And um, Why grotesque? That seems like such a bad, terrible word. I know. I love this, though. I love explaining this, so I'm glad you asked. Um, so when they first were developed, they were actually developed for display, which I, is counter to what we think of today. We tend to use, you know, sans serifs for everything, body copy. Sometimes we could use them for display or logos, design or whatever. But we think of them more as industrial and everyday, right? Not, not just display. Well, they, they were developed for display. And the people at the time, they didn't receive them very well. They actually thought that they were quite ugly, hence the word grotesque. Really? Yes. Um, and that was when they were first developing these in the, um, you know, during the Industrial Revolution, towards the end of the Industrial Revolution, they are actually, you know, sort of shelved for a while. Like people still have them, but they don't really, there's not a whole lot of demand for them. And then much, much later, well, later in the you know, early 1900s, 1910, 1920, they get adopted by the modernists, and that's when they take off. And so you'll hear terms like grotesques, and those are usually the, um, the earliest versions of sans serif fonts, and then you'll hear things like neo-grotesque, and that's usually um, used to describe a typeface that's designed based on those earlier sans serif fonts. 
Um, so William Caslon Jr., Jr. Um, as the example says, is one of the early adopters of a sans serif style font. And again, it was used for display. Um, our next advancement is wooden movable type. And this was actually developed in the United States by a man named Darius Wells. And he initially started carving these wooden types by hand, but um, eventually you know, developed a, a machine, a system, uh, and mechanized the process to make it much faster. A CNC um, router? No, I'm just kidding. I know. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the, the reason he did this is there, are, I mean, there are so many reasons. He could make these really large, ornate, decorative types um, much, much easier. This would have been really difficult to do in metal when you're casting mm -hmm. um, hot metal. Um, when you cast hot metal in large types, sometimes when it cools, it cools unevenly and it can become like concave. And so it doesn't make a good impression when you're trying to print it. They can also crack and become very brittle. So um, the wooden uh, types solved a lot of those problems and it allowed for these really ornate forms. And that's one of the styles that, you know, America is associated with very early on is these wooden movable type. Where was Very he? Um, you know, he was in the United States, but exactly okay. where I couldn't tell you. That's um, good. <laughs> but they were also cheap and westward expansion was going on. So they were light and they traveled well and you could, you could pick up your type shop and move it wet out west um, with you without a whole lot of uh, a trouble, you know, if you were trying to take metal types. Yes. What's that fourth R? I know what's in all the others, I think, but I don't know what's in that fourth. I can't make it out. I think it's a rose. One, two, three, four. Am I looking at the right one? It's mainly um, white. Yeah, yeah. I think it's some sort of floral design, but whether or not it's a rose, I couldn't tell you for sure. Okay, keep going. There's definitely leaves and foliage. Okay. So um, now the, the, the compositions in these wooden type, wood type posters tend to be very constrained. They were relying on um, printing presses and letterpress. And so they would often have these very distinctive styles where the margins would be even or justified. Um, and that was, it, you could almost attribute that to laziness. It's not like it was impossible to not make margins justified, but it was just easier to go ahead and, you know, you have to lock everything up in the printing bed um, to make those margins all even. Um, so next, um, in addition to this typographic revolution, there's a printing revolution. And one of the amazing things to think about is when Gutenberg or Lorenz Koster, whoever you think develops the printing press first, um, first developed the printing press in roughly 1450, it went relatively unchanged until about the year 1800, which is just amazing to think of. Yeah. And then, yeah. And then in 1800, Lord Stanhope um, developed the first cast iron press. So that was the first change. It made it a lot more durable and it actually sped up um, the process, allowing to make more impressions per hour. Um, and then the next um, advancement was a steam powered press. Um, this sped up the process um, from, I think the cast iron press did roughly 250 impressions an hour to roughly 400 impressions an hour. So this one was developed in 1804. So four years later, that's what's funny to me is like, you know, we went so long without making any changes. And then all of a sudden we have um, these successive changes where, you know, we go to the cast iron press, we go to the steam powered press, and then they keep making changes. Um, 
they next, um, the, the, the Times, the London Times hired, um, um, I think you actually pronounce his name Koenig, Frederick Koenig. Um, they hired him to develop yet another printing press, um, one that allowed for, I think it's um, a thousand impressions per hour. And then um, another printer, yes. Oh, well, are these people engineers or are they like printers? Like, that's a good question. I've actually never dove into Koenig's um, history, actually. So I couldn't tell you. Um, I know that, so um, a lot of people who got into letterpress initially were metalsmiths or they were gem cutters. And those skills translated pretty nicely yeah. to making and constructing type. But what Koenig did specifically, I couldn't tell you. I'm pretty sure Gutenberg was a goldsmith before he got into letterpress. Hmm. Um, let's see. So soon printers were were printing up to 2,000 impressions per hour, and they started mechanizing all of the processes. So um, they started creating mechanized ink rollers, and they mechanized the process of making paper. Yes. I know. I have a full of questions You're today. fine. I think we're doing better on time today. Okay. So what about, so there's like a fire somewhere putting steam in the, how, where's like the coal or, do you know what I mean? Uh, yeah. So um, again, I, I haven't familiarized myself with the actual process and how steam engines work. Okay. I'm sorry. Too many. No, you're fine. You're like, fine. you should come take the class, Diane. You should. And you know what I would tell you if I'm in your, if you were in my class, I would say, why don't I'd you go look, look it up. <laughs> I will. Okay. Steam press. Gonna look it up. Okay. So um, so they mechanized these processes. Um, so they started mechanizing the inking, the ink rollers were mechanized, and the paper making was mechanized. And then like the last um, step that wasn't mechanized was, was actually setting the type that still had to be done by hand. And it was a pretty big ordeal, especially if you were setting, um, if you were printing for newspaper publication, it had to be done very quickly, very efficiently. They had lots and lots of people, whole rooms dedicated to just setting type. Um, so there, the investigation into how can we mechanize that problem led to the development of the linotype machine. When was that? Um, what? When was that? Oh, you did ask. It's 1886. I have it actually in my notes. I'm so proud. You're like, I have that answer. <laughs> I do have that one. I don't have all of your answers. Um, so, um, and I, I think his name was, um, Ottomar Mergenthaler. I'm not, I, well, I know that was his name. I'm not sure about the pronunciation <laughs> or Mergenthaler. I'm not really sure. Anyway. Um, so he mechanized this process and, um, you know, anytime you mechanize processes or simplify processes in this way, you're cutting people out of business. You know, they, this remove jobs from people who set Robots. Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. And it, it makes things more efficient for us in the long run, but um, people certainly get upset about it. Um, but the reason the linotype machine was actually called the linotype um, was because, you know, after you you depressed the keys and set your type, you had, would hit a, a bar or a button and it would produce it, one solid piece of lead with all of the type instead of the individual pieces. Um, so this really did speed up the process quite a bit. And there's a really great film about 
the linotype out there, I highly recommend um, if you want to know more about those processes to look into that. It's really well done and it's really interesting. And then they would melt them down and use that lead again. So it wasn't yeah, like, absolutely. right? That, that whole machine was amazing. And that's one of the reasons I highly recommend that movie is because it had hot metal in uh, the machine and you would just throw that back into the hot metal portion and it would melt back down and it would start all over. And these were really dangerous machines to run and, yeah. and sort of to, to run it, you had to actually know how to fix it and maintain it. Um, which was really involved. They're asking what the name of the movie is again. Is it the I linotype? It's just called linotype. Yeah. I think I can't remember. Oh yeah. Linotype there. Brian says that's correct. Yes. Yeah. Very good. Um, so one of the next advancements was the development of lithography um, and lithography. This is sort of where some histories actually begin. So if you think of it, if you were here with us yesterday um, and <laughs> And you, you caught all that history that we talked about yesterday. A lot of people, you know, you only get one history um, period. Mm -hmm. Like you, there's not this option of having your history broken up into three different semesters. So a lot of people will start here. And some of the history books even start here um, during the lithographic period. Because this is where um, these, you know, beautiful posters start being able to be made. Um, lithography was a lot different than... Um, the process of printing with a printing press, and it allowed for multiple colors and um, allowed for, for text and image to be integrated pretty succinctly into one design. Um, and here we have an example from Jules Charest. He's one of the leaders, the early adopters of lithography for the use of um, graphic design or, or commercial art, as it were. Um, he has a beautiful style. Um, and he was also a contemporary of Henry Toulouse-Lautrec, who Ooh. I know is one of Diane's favorites, so I made sure to throw him in there, but he also has this really great style. Around the same time, um, um, work from Japan was being introduced, and so a lot of the artists and um, designers at this time were seeing examples of those Yukioe prints that we talked about. Um, last time. And so they were, uh, you know, bringing some of those principles that the, the Japanese were using into their design. So you start to see a lot of application of flat color. You start to see a lot of black outlines, um, very simplified designs. And I think Henry Toulouse-Lautrec's designs are a great example of, of that integration of those principles. And maybe even contrast, like contrast is really played up in at least his work, I think. I agree. I agree. And, you know, I think it's amazing how relevant these designs still are. If you go to, you know, any poster shop today, like a Hobby Lobby or, or something like that, you're going to find Charest's work there. You're going to find Henry Toulouse-Lautrec's and some of the other designers we're going to be talking about here in a little bit, too. And he has his little mark there, the bottom and yes. left. Yes. I love and that. something else on the right, but I don't know what that is. Yeah, I'm not really sure. It might have been just the His parents were... First cousins. Oh, I did not. Did know you that. know that? No, but you know the Egyptians we were talking about yesterday were brother and sister, husband and wife. Huh. Well, I think that's why they had some, you know, issues with like yeah. Toulouse Lautrec had that Toulouse Lautrec syndrome, whereas yeah. legs, yeah. you know, were messed up. I think it's because it's too many inbreeding. Yeah. Look, I say that. And I live in Alabama, people. Here we go. <laughs> I'm just kidding. We don't do that here. That's a Mississippi, right, Kent? I'm just kidding. 
can't live as anyway. Keep going. We're just joking. Okay. So one of our next big advancements that's going to have a big impact on graphic design is actually the development of photography. So Louis Daguerre was one of the first um, to really experiment with um, photography. And the process when he when it was first being developed uh, was really time intensive. So if you look at some of the really early examples of um, photography, uh, a lot of the pictures are really blurry because they had to be exposed for a really long period of time to actually capture the image. So there, you know, there's some blurry um, and hazy qualities to it, which I think is quite nice, actually. Mm. So this is an iconic early image by Louis Daguerre. He really refines this process and he names his process Daguerreotypes. So a lot of the early photography is called Daguerreotypes. And he was really secretive about that process, really protective about the process. So people who, you know, you know found ways around that process, they generally did it on their own. They did not use Daguerre's process. Hmm. Um, so when photography was first being um, developed, there was a couple of things about it. Um, people felt that... Um, uh, that this was going to be the end of painting. Mm. We had no need for painting anymore, right? Because previously painting had been used to uh, to capture people's likenesses through portraiture. It had been to document history. It had been, you know, and for pleasure too. But, um, but all of these things, like why do we need um, painting now? Because we have photography and photography is so much more accurate than painting. So this really was a revolution for painting then as well. Yes, yes, exactly. So this actually leads directly to the avant-garde, to things like the Impressionist movement, where people are moving away from realistic uh, depictions in painting because we don't need it anymore. But also this is, you know, they can start exploring more interesting and, uh, you know, much, much more, um, elevated techniques and styles and ideas. It gets starts getting more conceptual. And again, this leads to the avant-garde. Um, but also for a very long time, um, p- photographers were not considered artists because it was the camera was doing all the work, um, which we know today to not be true. You know, you as a photographer, you need to know how, yeah, you need to know how to run your camera, um, which is much more easy with DSLR cameras today, but at the same time, there's still lots of settings. And at at this time you had to be able to, especially in the early days, you had to be able to develop your own film um, and that sort of thing. Um, But Julia Cameron is an example of a woman who was given a camera by her daughters, I wanna say in her 40s or 50s, I think maybe 50s. And so she picked up photography and she became a pretty well-known portrait photographer and she took photographs of some pretty well-known British citizens like Thomas Carlyle, who I believe was a historian. Um, and so, you know, the idea that just anybody could pick this up was sort of grasped by this um, example. And um, so then, therefore, it wasn't considered as artistic, right? That's what some people were saying. But still, historically, if you look at art history and you look at photography history, people like Julia Cameron are. Um, you know, admired historically. They, you know, they revere the the portraits that she took of Thomas Carlyle and others. So, it's fun, you know. Well, like this is today, the iPhone, yeah. everybody's got a camera, yeah. right? Yeah. But then yeah. some people are really using this tool to a different degree. 
And I think that like Patricia in Portland, she did this class in risography. Oh, yeah. Anyway, but that was like a printing, you know, it was a technician or it was a craftsperson. It wasn't an artist necessarily, you know, and I think that then it, after it becomes, I don't know, not functional any one, any, eh, anymore than it, you know, we've figured out something else, then the artists kind of take it over and then they start utilizing it. It's not just a tool, you know, yeah, it's like you can build absolutely. a house with a hammer, but you can also build some art, you know, I don't know, whatever. I'm just talking, keep going. <laughs> okay. Um, so the next person I want to talk about in terms of photography is Matthew Brady. And mm-hmm. he was one of the first to really use photography to document history He um, had a team of photographers that documented the Civil War. They had press passes. I'm not really sure how safe those press passes were because people wouldn't have known what they were prior to the Civil War. Um, But there were a lot of document, um, a lot of pictures that he used to document history. And one iconic image is this um, image titled Friedman on the Canal Bank at Richmond, dated from 1865. And One of the interesting things about this is it got picked up by a newspaper and they wanted to print it in the newspaper, but they didn't have the technology at the time to actually print photographs. So then they hired an artist or, you know, a woodcut artist to make a woodcut of the same image. So John McDonald, also in 1865, made a woodcut of Friedman on the Canal Bank at Richmond in order for it to be printed in the newspaper. That is fascinating. That's what Catherine says too. Yeah. So, um, <clears throat> so photography was not the end of painting, um, but but I, I love talking about that because this idea, this very similar idea, has happened before, right? Or it has has come up in more recent, like you know, that the internet and digital technologies are the end of print, and so far that hasn't happened. But you could say that it has certainly shifted it in the same way that photography was shifted um painting right yeah very dynamic changes there um one of my use of those people right a different it's not just technician getting your portrait you know there's this other creative endeavor exactly allows for a lot more creativity yeah okay so maybridge or however you say this guy's name yeah i've always wondered too edward moybridge maybridge Um, so he was, um, a photographer and this is one of my favorite stories. I could get hung up in all of these stories, but he was hired by Leland Stanford, who was then the governor of California to help settle a bet. Um, the bet was to prove that a horse, a trotting horse lifts all four feet up off the ground. And Moybridge was trying to figure out how to solve this issue. And what he did is he set up a series of cameras on a track. And I think they were spaced maybe, you know, a foot apart, two feet apart, something like that. And then he had a basically a trip wire set up that as the horse ran through the track, it would set off all of these cameras and it took pictures in a distinct um, time frame. And he did, in fact, prove that a horse lifts, a trotting horse lifts all four feet up and a running horse lifts all four feet up off the ground. Um, Woodbridge became really fascinated with the whole studies of motion. So he did, in, he did several studies of horses running. He did studies of people moving and dancing and running. Um, and this actually ends up leading to the, um, to the development of, like, of, of motion pictures, essentially. This idea leads to, to that other one. 
So all of these experiments are going to have a big impact. And of course, eventually we start using photography in um, graphic design. So that's going to have a big impact here in a little bit. Um, one of the other things that we talk about in design history is the evolution of style. Mm. So during the Industrial Revolution, one of the big stylistic movements that we recognize is the Victorian era. And the Victorian design was, um, was really busy. It was really ornamental. Um, you know, there was usually you know, different typefaces going on in one design, not a lot of white space. Um, very ornate designs. And I wanted to show you guys this example of an advertisement from Coca-Cola um, because I think it's a great example. The Coca-Cola logo is considered a logo designed in the Victorian design, um, an ornamental script, um, Spencerian script font, or not font, hand lettering. It, it, how was, was it originally designed? Um, and uh, they actually used... Um, celebrities at the time. Uh, very often they used opera singers who we wouldn't think of as really well-known celebrities today, but they would have been in their time. Um, another advancement during the Victorian era was the ability to print on uh, tin metal. So um, packaging takes a big leap forward during this period too. And so you'll see a lot of these really beautiful ornate tins from the Victorian era um, again, you know, they follow those same principles, ornate, beautiful, um, de decorative typography, lots of um, elements to them, not a lot of white space. Um, and so those are great examples of Victorian design, too. And it's really, again, really, really busy. Um, and one of the interesting things about these evolutions of styles is we're going to see that very often what changes the style is the philosophies at the time. So um, sometimes they build on those philosophies and sometimes they reject earlier philosophies. So um, our next example of an evolution of style is going to be um, the arts and crafts style. And William Morris is often considered to be the founder of the arts and crafts style. <clears throat> and basically he was rejecting the quality of design work that came out of the Victorian era um, so he wanted to return to things that were handmade and were made by craftsmen, people who, who labored for things that were beautiful. And he also had strong ideas. He, was, uh, he definitely had socialist leanings. He had strong ideas about quality of life. And he felt that people who were you know, craftsmen um, working on individual pieces took more joy in what they were creating rather than factory workers. So he felt like that made that that helped them to have a better life, um, and there there's some interesting connections there. He also created beautiful ornate designs. He was inspired, so not necessarily by the Victorian designs, but he was inspired by a lot of the medieval designs. He was looking back to an earlier um, era in which things were made by hand, and where he felt things were to, you know made with care. And he would design these beautiful books. Um, he also designed wallpapers and furniture, and he was also dabbled in architecture. So he was one of those jack-of-all-trades designers. Um, but these books that he designed, he would um, have, you know, typefaces custom-made, and he would hire illustrators to, to draw the illustrations uh, or create the illustrations. 
Um, and he actually commissioned handmade paper because he felt handmade paper was of higher quality um, than the um, than the mass-produced paper. Um, and his goal was to create these beautiful books that uh, that everybody could afford. But unfortunately, he he used such expensive materials that he he ended up not succeeding in that aspect. He priced himself out of uh, of the you know general public market there. Well, then that's what a craftsperson does. And Kent just said his wallpaper is still being used in Buckingham Palace. Oh, wow. That's exciting. I, I, they have lots and lots of examples of his wallpaper. And some of it's really reminiscent of the borders that we see here on the arts and crafts um, book design. <clears throat> but see, so, this is the stuff that I love. I love that Kent, Kent recently went, I think, to Europe, right? Oh, and cool. He had this huge, I saw his Instagram feed, and he's a great photographer. But these are the things, like, if we didn't know about this design-wise, um, you know, I think this is illustration, I think. Yeah, yeah. This wallpaper is super expensive for sure. <laughs> yeah, I think you can still buy William Morris design wallpaper. I think people are still producing it. Okay, keep so going. I know that for sure. Okay, so the next iteration is going to be Art Nouveau. So in the arts and crafts era, people were rejecting things that were mechanized, um, returning to craftsmanship. I mean, there were certain instances where they couldn't completely, re you know, reject mechanized processes, but they were, by and large, they were, they were uh, rejecting that. But the Art Nouveau period, um, which is born from the arts and crafts era, <clears throat> excuse me, actually, yes, we're, we want quality design, but we can use those mechanized processes and we can make them better. And we can use them together with quality craftsmanship to make things even better, more beautiful, stronger. Um, and in terms of the um, graphic design side of Art Nouveau, we see that most predominantly in um, poster design. And I think that for most people, when they conjure up, if you're familiar with Art Nouveau, if you're thinking of a design, you're probably thinking of an Alphonse Mucha or Mucha um, poster, um, it, which Almost all of them have these female figures. They're asymmetrically designed. They've got this long flowing hair and they're just beautifully composed, beautifully designed, beautifully illustrated pieces. People are still very inspired by Luca's work. Um, if you get to like any of those art sharing sites, like I mean, Instagram or Behance or, or um, DeviantArt, there's a lot of people who create posters in the Luca style, um, their own interpretations. So it was, so what about her being naked? Um, from what I can tell, the French weren't really bothered by it. Okay. <laughs> uh, and, and not all of his posters are naked, um, but a lot of them had the feminine form featured very prominently. So it didn't seem to but be a also huge problem. stylized in a different way, but still really flourishy. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Brian says sex sells. <laughs> That's true. Very true. Um, so Mucha is associated with the French Art Nouveau movement. But the neat thing about Art Nouveau is it becomes this really global style, at least in Western cultures. And, um, and it starts moving through different countries. And as it's adopted into, into different countries, they, they sort of make it their own and they bring in their own heritage and culture into the style. And it adopts different names. So in... Scotland, for example, it becomes known as the Glasgow School. 
And um, Charles Rene McIntosh is one of the um, leading designers associated with this movement. And he was an architect and an interior designer and a furniture designer, but he also did some poster design and what we would consider graphic design. Um, one of his most iconic elements in his designs are these, he, so different from the French style, um, the French tend to be very organic and very sinuous S-curves. And um, Macintosh used much more linear patterns and geometry. Hmm. Um, and even when things were organic, there was still this more um, geometric approach to it, if I can say that. Um, and his, uh, his lettering style was very popular, and you can still see um, typefaces today that are in response to that. Mm -hmm. um, I always think it's really interesting when I watch American Horror Story and the typeface that they use. Um, in the titles is reminiscent of Macintosh's and the Glasgow School. Yes. Okay. So what about the long skinny? Was that something else that was specific to this kind of era? I, I, I'm just asking. The long skinny forms? Is that what you're yeah. talking about? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, with the Glasgow School, you see a lot of really elongated forms. If you look at his, um, his chair designs, I didn't include that since we were talking mostly about graphic design you see a lot of similarities there with the geometric forms, but these really elongated forms, he used high back chairs in a lot of his designs and they are just beautiful chair designs. But like even the format of this poster, right? Oh, it's really, how long it is. Yeah. Yeah. I, well, I don't know why he would choose to do something so long, but I, I agree. But you know, in the Art Nouveau style, you do start to see some really long format posters, even Muka. Um, his um, posters for Sarah Bernhardt, a lot of them were these really long format posters too. So you do see that in the French Art Nouveau as well. Yes. I wonder if he, was he tall? Oh, I, I think he might've been. I've seen pictures of him, but I don't, I didn't ever pay attention to, you know. Or maybe he just he really was. liked tall people, you know, cause yeah. like to elongate chairs or, you know, like Frank Lloyd Wright, I pretty sure he was pretty short so a lot yeah. of his furniture is really made for little people you know and so it, I, I don't know just a, but I, I didn't know about the form like sometimes it's about saving money and you could get two of these up on one sheet of paper right yeah yeah I don't know well, so I know the chairs those high back chairs he used them in space that like oh like he would create design tea rooms and they would be these great big open rooms and he used the high back chairs to almost create dividers so that you, even though you were in this open room, you felt like you were um, separated from the other people in the room. Oh, kind of like booths do for us. Yeah, exactly. exactly. That's neat. Well, yeah. and just for the record, I don't know what FLW means, Catherine, but he says, oh, Frank Lloyd Wright was 5'7". Right. Never mind. I know what FLW is. 5'7", that's tall to me. <laughs> I'm five one. Okay. So, okay. Who, where's this other guy that you just showed us? Not Mac. Oh, okay. So we're going to jump next to the Vienna secession. Um, so the Vienna secession is the name for the um, art nouveau movement in Vienna specifically. And this one, well, um, well, art nouveau in France is pretty easy to characterize. You can, you can talk about certain characteristics that showed up over and over and over in French Art Nouveau. And the same thing with the, the Glasgow School um, with the Scottish Art Nouveau style. In the Vienna Secession, these artists 
and designers were really just trying to push away from traditional art and they didn't want a set style. So there's very um, dramatic differences in throughout the Vienna Secession. And it's really hard to name all of the designers, all of the artists in, a, in this format. So I highly recommend that you look into the Vienna Secession. I went ahead and showed you guys this one from Coleman Moser, because this is one of my favorite Vienna Secession posters. It does remind me a little bit more of the Glasgow School, and I do understand, um, based on my research, that the Vienna Secessionists were more inspired by Glasgow's version of Art Nouveau than they were inspired by the French version of Art Nouveau. Um, and you'll notice they're taking some chances with the the lettering on this. Um, the 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 type becomes a, or the lettering becomes a little bit hard to read. Yes. Um, so, but it's beautiful, and it certainly complements the colors. Thing. But the colors are really radically different. Like the others were sort of in a, a same tone, tonally green, yes. blue next to each other. These are working off the um, opposites on the color wheel. So it seems really, I mean, the grid is so clear as well. And just how, you know, I don't know. I guess these are triangles inside those little teardrop things. Yes. In this piece, there's a lot of geometry, there's a lot of grids, but in the Vienna Secession as a whole, they're just very, very, very different. It's, you have to go in and start looking at some of the stuff that they were doing. It's, I have it's one other question. So yes. see that overlay? So it looks like a lighter blue, like her oh, hair yes. partly. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it's a halo, I don't know. Are these Asian people supposed to be? You know, I get that question a lot and I don't. there's not a whole lot of documented information about this poster so I don't know if there's but it does remind you sort of of, um, of Japanese animation or, or anime style. Or the, the hair you know like is yeah hair, I think that's a blue halo right it could be I don't know and so then it looks like maybe the hair is, is I don't know maybe not but there's a lot of questions about this piece um, I love it though but love see it. where it overlays that you know when you do overlay and are, were these were these still lino prints or are these silk screen? I don't know the specifics on this particular print. I assumed it was a lithograph, but I could be completely wrong. Okay. So, but see that light blue? I don't know in lithography if you get the same if you're using transparent ink, but the ink is it's cut out of the places that it's not going to be, right? Where that Yeah circle is that kind of connects all the women but then there's that overlay and I haven't ever seen that in all the other ones I, I don't think that this is really utilized specifically I don't know I'm going to look into that but do you know what um, I'm talking about that yeah, light blue? I do I do I have not really paid that much attention I've paid more attention to the forms of the characters I hadn't really paid attention to that and th so that would be then a question about the techniques that they use and again, like I said, from what I've been able to tell, there's not a lot of documented information about this particular piece. Well, and I would also think having such flat color going from top to bottom, it's very difficult to do, you know, to make sure that you're printing. So, I mean, lithography is a beast, to be honest. <laughs> it is really difficult. Like, it really kicks people out sometimes. Anyway, we have lith lithostones in there. Oh, okay. that's exciting. I wish we did. I'll show you one if we have time after. Oh, yeah, I would love that. Okay. So then we make our way to Germany, and the style in Germany is referred to as Jungen Stil, which means youth style. And they had a publication called Jungend, or Youth. This was a magazine um, titled Youth. 
um, that really promoted the style and the movement. But similar to uh, more the Vienna secession, they didn't lock into one element. This was very experimental. But you do tend to see some designs that um, that look like they are more inspired by French Art Nouveau, like in particular the uh, the Jungend in the middle, um, the cover in the middle. We have the woman, it's asymmetrical. There's a lot of very flowy, organic lines. Um, but the Jungenstil movement is also quite interesting, and there's a lot of really great artists associated with that. So look into that if you have more time. Oops. That looks like um, that artist in the 70s. I can't think of. Um, maybe Victor Moscoso? I don't know. I'm or Rick artist. Griffin? Anyway, okay. somebody who's doing these really, um, you know. Psychedelic stuff? Yeah, psychedelic kind yes. of posters. Yeah, so the the Art Nouveau period for sure is going to have a lot of inspiration to the psychedelic era and the music posters from that era. Why? Just um, some of the artists, in particular, um, Stanley Mouse and um, Alton Kelly, Victor Moscoso, um, they were interested in in they would start digging through old stuff and they looked at Art Nouveau and they would drew a lot of inspiration. In particular, um, Alton Kelly and Stanley Mouse, they worked together. They actually did a piece, I think it was for the Jim Queskin Jug Band, which utilized a MUCA design. I mean, basically they reinterpreted the MUCA design, which was I think for the cigarette papers, and then they just basically appropriated it and brought it into the, the music scene, um, recolored it, but it's essentially almost the exact same image. And then they took it from the cigarettes poster ad to a concert poster. Um, so some interesting stuff that we may or may not talk about tomorrow. I can't okay. remember if it's in the outline or not. <laughs> I might have to add it in. Anyway, this is great. Oh, good. Good. So when we get to, um, to England, uh, the Art Nouveau period or the Art Nouveau movement is usually referred to as the aesthetic movement. Um, and one of the big names there is Aubrey Beardsley. And Beardsley mostly, he worked predominantly in black and white. And his images were really um, dark themes. They sometimes were erotically themes. Um, and they had this beautiful line work and high contrast. Um, this piece is a illustration from the play, Oscar Wilde's play Salome, um, you know, which was a bit risque at the time as well. Um, and when Beardsley died, he died quite young, I believe of tuberculosis. Um, he supposedly asked his, one of his friends or business partners to destroy his work because he was afraid that he was going to go to hell, essentially. Um, he, basically, he was looking for salvation on his deathbed, and this, this person, this friend or business partner promised him that he would do it, but they didn't do it. Um, continued thank making money. Yeah, thank goodness, because his work is fantastic, um, but definitely um, has some dark and erotic themes. Um, the One of the last things I do want to mention before I move on to the next thing is the, um, the Art Nouveau movement in... Um, Barcelona and Spain and Barcelona specifically was headed up by uh, a man named Antoni Gaudi. Um, it's called modern, modernismo there or the Catalan. Um, 
modernism style. Um, and we're not really going to talk about that. But there's not a whole lot of examples of graphic design history from that. But again, this is very inspiring. So I highly recommend that you look into it if you're not familiar with it. Like Gaudi, like the typeface, G-O-U-D-Y, or is it a different um, spelling? G-A-U-D-I. Oh, totally not anything <laughs> I was writing down. Okay. <laughs> okay, so next we're going to move on to Art Deco. Um, and Art Deco uses, there's a lot of visual similarities between the Art Deco movement and the Art Nouveau movement. But one of the big differences is where Art Nouveau tends to use a lot of organic forms, Art Deco tends to use a lot more geometric forms. Um, and Art Deco was also really interested in new technologies, um, travel and communications had a big influence. Um, and, the, and the artist Anne Cassandra who did this particular poster is one of the big names associated with Art Deco. And much like some of the other earlier artists that we talked about, Sheree and Toulouse-Lautrec, if you walk into like a Hobby Lobby right now or something like that, you're going to be able to find some Cassandra posters there. And what's interesting is there was this, he was classically trained as an artist and um, he adopted um, this, this uh, pseudonym. Um, I mean, it, it had parts of his real name in it, but um, he did that because at some point he wanted to transition into making quote unquote real art. And he didn't want that to sort of sully his name. So he worked at, under the pseudonym, but it really became his career. And he really was a career graphic designer, if you will. But there was, at this time, there was definitely still this distinct different, this ideology of a high art and a low art. And that's why he worked under a pseudonym. And it seems like this is, is this where in, in Art Deco style where you're getting gradients, like you're showing more dimension instead of everything just being flat? Yes. And they start using airbrush during this period too. So that's one of the ways that they are able to, to get that, that look. Cool. Um, in terms of illustration, I want to briefly mention um, Courier and Eyes. This was an art reproduction company. And because of some of the advancements with um, technology and printing methods, people, uh, companies like Courier and Ives, an art reproduction company, became possible. And for the first time, you could own art prints without buying original art, which made it much, much more affordable. And that meant that middle classes and even possibly lower classes could now afford art for their homes. And Courier and Ives was a very popular art reproduction company. They made these really, um, you know, charming illustrations, very often winter scenes and scenes like this where there's a, horses and a sleigh ride or people enjoying the outdoors in the winter. And so even if you don't, aren't familiar with who Courier and Ives is, you've probably seen these before. Maybe your grandmother had a, a print that was similar to this in her home or um, I've seen them very often reproduced on tins today, like cookie tins at Christmas time. So you see them there quite a bit. Um, so, but I think that's really interesting that because of these printing techniques, people start to get to have art in their homes for the very first time. Well, they got the Bible in their homes that, that it gave reading, right? Or, or um, literacy and yeah, now now it's leveling up so yeah also and this is probably not a you know somebody who has servants maybe i mean she does have like one of those herb 
a mink coats or I don't know, the looks sort of like a ones that, you know, Queens or whatever, but he's driving in himself. Yeah. You know, it seems like, so it's maybe normal, like normal wealthy people. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. One of the other things that makes a big headway during this era, especially in the Victorian era, is the development of children's picture books. Um, so artists like um, Walter Crane and Randolph Caldecott are some of the illustrators that are associated with the development of children's picture books, <laughs> which became very prevalent during the Victorian era. Um, and then the other illustrator that I really want to point out from this era is Thomas Nast. And I really love telling Thomas Nast story. Um, he was an American illustrator who worked for Harper's uh, Magazine, Harper's Weekly, and he did a lot of political and editorial illustrations for them. He's often referred to as the father of editorial illustrations, um, <clears throat> and he used his, um, his illustrations to bring to light a lot of the um, political corruption at the time, and this, this image in particular that I'm sharing with you guys, the Tamanay Tiger on the Loose, um, this had some ties to the corrupt um, Democratic um, group Tamanay Hall, and they were known for all kinds of bad practices. You know, they would stuff ballot boxes or prevent people from voting if they thought they were going to vote um, the other way. They, you know, they bribed people. They did all kinds of um, bad, pro you know, bad practices. And in the back, in the stands, um, where the, um, so this is like a Roman Colosseum, right? And mm -hmm. the, where the Roman emperor would sit, that's actually a, a real, like a real life person um, illustrated in the scene, um, Boss Tweed. And Boss Tweed was a figure who was associated with Tammany Hall and was known for his corruption, or he was known for his corruption by and large due to the fact that people like Thomas Nast were illustrating these corrupt um, these corruptions that they were doing, like the, all the, the illicit deeds and things like that. And um, Boss Tweed even had a quote, and I don't remember exactly what it said, but it implied that he wasn't really worried about what people were writing about him in newspapers, but these images that Thomas Nass was producing were very threatening. Um, and it is thought by and large that he gets caught due to the fact that um, Thomas Nast um, was illustrating these. So he gets wow. um, imprisoned. Yes, he gets imprisoned. He actually escapes, but then he's recognized because his face has been all over papers um, and he gets caught again and he dies in prison. He's the big guy right over that little yes. dial yes. or whatever. So Catherine has a question about the okay. courier in Ives. Do you know when it started? Ooh, I don't have it in my notes. I don't, but I can tell you they went under because different printing practices um, came up. I think it was uh, photo lettering, maybe. Uh, anyway, they got put out because of, of, of uh, put out of business because new technology arose. Sorry, right, I don't have the exact time frame. We can look it up. It's it's a it's a book or a Google answer. Okay, keep going. Okay. So the next thing I want to talk to you about, and I'm going to take you back to uh, William Morris for this, is um, the craft press movement. Craft so, press? Yes, craft okay. press movement. So um, William Morris had a big impact on design in general, and he was making these beautiful books um, through the Kelmscott Press. 
And while he was not successful in making these beautiful books affordable for the common man, what he was successful in doing was um, encouraging other people to elevate their, their production of books as well. So a lot of um, these really small printing houses started opening up um, craft printers, if you will, and they were creating these really, really beautiful books. Um, so this is an example from William Morris, and another great example of um, a craft press is the Doves Press, and this is, um, I think this is not from, so the Doves Press were known to put out the Doves Press Bible. I don't know if, I think this may be a different um, example. This might be the Paradise Lost, like a, a Paradise Lost in particular print. Where is the Doves Press? So the Doves Press was in England. Okay. And um, it was, and I'm, I'm really sad I didn't keep all my notes on this one. I think it was Cobden Sanderson. There were two gentlemen who started it, Cobden Sanderson and maybe Walker. I can't remember the two, but they end up, they, so they designed this beautiful typeface, which is known as the Doves Press Type. And they use it in all of their productions but they have a falling out and so they split ways and there's some sort of agreement where Cobden Sanderson gets to keep the type and the press until, you know, a certain point. Um, he's an older gentleman. And then at some point he's supposed to turn all of that over to the other gentleman. Um, and instead of turning it over to him, he takes nightly walks out and drops it in the tank, um, drops it in the river. Um, that's how much of a disagreement they had. They wow. have actually, divers have gone into the Thames and they've recovered these metal types. And there has been a digital version that is now available of the Doves type. That happened a few years back. I can't remember exactly when, maybe 2007. It's been a little while. That's not that long ago. Yeah. Well, we, so not when it happens, but obviously much more recently. And obviously they were making digital versions of it. So that had to be fairly recent. Was this book little or is that just really big type? I think I've just got it really zoomed in on this slide. Okay. Keep going. not really sure. Yeah. Um, another small craft press is the Roycroft Press in the United States. Um, this was started by Albert Hubbard and he did some beautiful design work there very much associated with like the Art Nouveau style, these beautiful repeated patterns. Um, <clears throat> and this was a like kind of a commune, um, the Roy Crofters community. Um, and uh, it ended up breaking up because um, Hubbard got a lot of the, like this was a commune, they were supposed to all work together and all enjoy the profits and share the profits. But apparently Hubbard was um, enjoy more of them than most people. So it ended up falling apart. Um, but something to definitely look a little bit more into because it's kind of an interesting story. So the foundations of modernism, um, futurism and Dada are some of the foundations of modernism. They were, the futurists were in Italy, Dadaists were, you know, they started primarily in um, France and in the United States, but they were eventually all over. Um, but they were, um, really breaking traditional typography. Hopefully you can see that from these two examples. So those as were a, there. As a response, like, a going against the man or what was the there? Futurism really was a, um, a big shift and a big break 
and they were they were pro-violence they were pro-war and um they wrote a manifesto the futurist manifesto which is really a violent take they were they were against women's rights and they were for the um the the fascist regime in in italy um which is kind of startling to associate them with Dada because Dada tended to be anti-war and, um, you know, make pieces that um, were, you know, against the war, against the, the regimes that were going on at the time. Um, so it's interesting that they had a similar take in terms of typography and breaking those um, traditional, you know, boundaries of typography, uh, but, you know, different, it came from different places, if you will. Another foundation for modernism is Adolf Luz. Adolf Luz wrote a, um, an article called Ornament and Crime. He actually gave it as a lecture and it was later uh, printed. And this basically equivalent, makes the um, equivalent of all ornament is criminal. Um, and if you ever have a chance to read this, like when I first read this, because I, I love modernism, I was like, yeah, ornament is a crime. Um, but when you actually read this, documents um, and it's still widely available um, it's pretty bad he was not a good person he probably believed in eugenics and things like that so um What's eugenics I, eugenics is um basically what they you know like the foundations of getting rid of jewish people killing oh. jewish people oh. you you, you want to get rid of traits you don't want so you don't want oh uh, yeah undesirables it's not a good idea so we also see the development of some of the first corporate identity during this era and what as early as time frame 1906 so this is early sort of the art nouveau period peter barons um, was working in germany at the aeg company he develops their logo and he develops a lot of their products like this teapot that we see here and then also their advertising so he's um, considered to be the first industrial designer for one thing, but he's also considered to be um, the designer of the first corporate identity. Hmm. And then you could actually even look at what the Nazis were doing as an example of corporate identity design. They created this really strong mark where they adopted, I should say, this really strong mark. The swastika was a mark that was already in use, um, but then they set it on this you know, red background with a white circle to set it off. Um, and then they created a, they actually created sort of a corporate identity manual, um, which um, talked about how to use it, where to use it, appropriate uses, and all the different variations. And as you can see here, um, the original manual was set in a textura typeface. Yeah. And um, which was, you know, the Germans had held on to those black letter and textura forms. And it was very, um, it was considered very German and very traditional. And so the, the Nazis in particular adopted them. Um, and so that's one of the reasons we see that here. Um, there's also a lot of politics and protests going on. Propaganda posters, one of the most iconic propaganda posters, the James Montgomery flag design, I want you for the U.S. Army. Um, was commissioned for the First World War, but it was also revived in World War II. Um, this is one of my favorite designs. Um, it uses a lot of the um, 
the ideology of, of propaganda posters where you vilify, identify and vilify the enemy. So this is an example of Adolf Hitler being identified and vilified. And you can see he's just a, he's a disgusting human being in this. He's got really um, barbaric looking arms. They're scraggly and hairy. He's got long fingernails. His teeth are disgusting. He's um, chewing on bones. He's sitting on skulls, which are identified with the places they've already um, captured, um, Poland and Belgium and, and whatnot. Um, and it's a little hard to see because it's dark background, but above him are um, vultures and carrion birds. So is, is this about the same time as Thomas Nast or no? Thomas Nast was much earlier. So Thomas Nast was much earlier. Yeah, that was um, more sort of around the um, uh, Civil War. But he's vilifying, identifying and vilifying. And so maybe they kind of pulled from history to do that yes. with these people. Yes, that's definitely a possibility. Um, one of the other things that propaganda posters would do is they would play on emotions such as um, guilt, patriotism. So I love this one because I think it shows the, the use of guilt. Daddy, what did you do in the Great War? Um, and you can see that his daughter is looking at perhaps a history book and the son is playing with soldiers. So this is, and the, the figure is that the gentleman is looking directly out at the viewer, basically saying, what are you going to say when your children ask you this? And wouldn't you be embarrassed if you said, well, I stayed at home. I was a conscientious objector. Um, so obviously in this instance, the, the answer, the moral to the story is you should join the fight. Also, Dadaist John Hartsville um, created these fantastic photo montages, which were in protest of the Nazi party. Um, and again, you've just got to go look at his work. This is one of my favorites. It's talking about basically the food being all gone. Um, and we're, but we're still happy. Everything's great. We have no food, but we're still happy. It's all wonderful. Look into John Hartfield's story. Look into his work. It's all phenomenal. Um, the modern movement, I'm gonna talk first about the Bauhaus. So modernism and modern typography come out of the movements of the Bauhaus, constructivism, de Stiel, new typography. Um, and the Bauhaus was of course, an, it was an iconic German school of design and it taught all aspects of design, industrial design, um, architecture, um, and, and you know, photography and painting and, and all kinds of things. Um, but um, some of the big names associated with that, Walter Gropius was the first director, um, Ludwig Mies van der Rohe was the last director, um, and Herbert Bayer was one of the iconic instructors. He was a student turned instructor and he becomes head of type and layout. So he created a lot of the modernist typography rules that we know today of using lots of white space and asymmetrical designs. He primarily used um, sans serif typography, and he also created this idea of a single case typeface, um, and that's what is at the bottom, is he believed that we didn't need two cases because they made the same sound. So why do we have two cases? And so he explored that idea. Um, Laszlo Moholy-Naj was another um, example of a great professor from the, the Bauhaus, and he really was exploring the idea of typography and photography, and how do we marry the use of typography and photography in graphic design. He, he felt that uh, what he called typophoto was, um, was the future of design, and he really was a proponent of that. 
Um, Joseph Albers was another um, great example of a professor from um, <clears throat> the Bauhaus. He had a big influence on, um, so a lot of these instructors ended up immigrating to America and teaching here as well. So Joseph Albers was an example of one of those, and he created this modular typography system, which is quite lovely, so I wanted to share that with you. Um, constructivists. Um, oh, I'm sorry, I moved. <laughs> I forgot I added this piece. This is also from the Bauhaus. Um, U.S. Schmidt was another um, designer from the Bauhaus. And this is probably one of the most iconic posters that comes up. So I wanted to show you guys this. A lot of people associate this particular design. And when people create um, designs inspired by the Bauhaus, they tend to pick and pull elements from this poster design. Yeah, Amy says this looks like the NCMA logo had to have been inspiration for it. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. I don't know what NCMA is, though. Okay, so constructivism. Um, El Lizitsky is one of the big names with constructivism, and you tend to see a lot of red, black, and white in constructivism, but like the Bauhaus, all of these movements were going on pretty much at the same time. So like the Bauhaus, they used a lot of modern typography. They used um, sans serif types. They used a strong grid and white space. Um, and But the red, black, and white is one of the things that a lot, and they didn't use that universally. Constructivists used a lot of different things, but the red, black, and white had a lot of meaning for them, and it had to do with the construction of the new government that they were forming, the Soviet Union. So they, they did tend to use uh, red, black, and white a lot. And Deep the Whites with the Red Wedge is one of the iconic designs from that era. Here's another one. Um, Alexander Rodchenko is associated with the constructivist movement. And this, you know, poster where the person is yelling out and the type is coming from their mouth. You see that um, brought up a lot in modern designs as well. Integrating the type and the image more. Yes, yes, yes. Um, and one of uh, the things I love about constructivism is you start to see some female designers for really one of the first times. Um, uh, Barbara Stepanova was Alexander Rodchenko's partner, and she was also a designer. And there's a couple of other female designers who are associated with the constructivist movement. And there's certainly not as much written about them, but because of um, the ideology that was founding constructivism and founding the new government, women were considered to be more on equal footing to men. So they could do things like participate in graphic design and art. Um, the Gestiel movement is a, another movement. This one's from the Netherlands, um, founded by Theo van Duisburg, or Theo van Duisburg, I think is actually how you say it. <clears throat> and again, modernist typography, um, sans serif fonts, often squared sans serif fonts, and using a lot of asymmetrical designs and grids. Then you have the new typography movement, which was founded by Jan Ciccolde. He wrote a book called The New Typography, which again, you should read this book. It's still widely available. Um, he talks about historical uses of types, and then he explains why he rejects them. And he, the arguments he makes are pretty valid. But one thing to keep in mind is while he was one of the founders and leaders of the new typography movement and of modernist typography and the rules and regulations, he later rejects those and basically says, do whatever you want. So he was, he cut this hard line in 1927 when he 
um, published this book and was said, this is how you should do type. You should only use sans serif type. You should only use asymmetrical layouts and grids and structure. And then later on, he comes back and says, it's too rigid. Do what you want. So Kutura is a typeface that was designed by Paul Renner as an attempt to create the ideal modernist typography. Um, and um, it's just such, got such an interesting history. It was rejected by, so he was from Germany and it was rejected by the Nazi party um, because it was too modern. It was too avant-garde. It was too edgy. Um, and so remember they were still using textura typefaces and black letter typefaces, but as they were spreading outside of Germany, um, they found they actually had to adopt a typeface that was more legible and, and worked for other cultures. And they actually started using Futura. Um, so a little bit of irony there. Hmm. Um, so then we get to the idea of traditionalist versus modernism and there were some um, typeface designers working in England who um, were holding on to some traditional values when it came to typography. Um, Eric Gill designed um, Gill Sands, and it was, he worked with Stanley Morrison to create this typeface, and they wanted to create a typeface that would compete with some of these really modern sans serif typefaces that were coming out, but still had traditionalist values. So Gill Sands was their answer to the sans serif problem, if you will. Do you know That's about him? I do know about him. Okay, we'll keep moving on. You guys can read <laughs> about that. He's a creepy man. Keep going. Very creepy. Okay, so Stanley Morrison, um, who I mentioned, he worked with Eric Gill to design the, the Gill Sands. Um, he also, uh, he designed Times New Roman, and he was commissioned by the London Times to develop Times New Roman. It is one of the two most prolific typefaces in the world, Helvetica and Times New Roman, are the most used typefaces in the world even today. Um, the London Times doesn't use it anymore. Uh, they have an updated, modified version that they use instead. But Stanley Morrison is still widely known for that. And um, we have another woman here. We have Beatrice Ward. She worked with both Eric Gill and Stanley Morrison at Monotype. And um, with, so she wrote a, a book called, or I'm sorry, she gave a lecture called The Crystal Goblet, which was then later um, printed and reproduced. And it talked about the new typography, well, not the new typography, but like new ideas on typography and how people should handle typography. And what's interesting is like she was associated with this more traditionalist approach to typography. Um, but the ideas were, that she presented were very modern. So it kind of showed how you could take a modern approach with traditional typography too. Um, also really interesting, again, she was a woman working in a predominantly male field, but she was highly regarded, highly recognized. She traveled all around the world giving lectures. Um, and part of that was due to, so she was an American who, who wrote a, a, an essay or, or wrote an article on, um, I believe it was Garriman's typeface, which got published in the UK. And, but she wrote it under a pseudonym. She wrote it under a man's name. And she got an offer to come to, to England to apply for a job at the Monotype Corporation. And she never notified them that she was a woman. She just showed up and she got the job. So it ended up working out for her. Um, I like incorporating 
information about women and minorities whenever possible. Um, we, we've stuck very much to like the canon of design history so far as we've talked about that. And I do think because that creates the general structure, but I'm going to try to uh, break into that every now and then when I can. But that's all I have for today. If you guys oh, have that's questions. Good. Will you take us off screen share? I sure will. So I think one that's one of the problems in teaching, right, is that you have, um, there's not as much known about women or minorities, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's just not as much out there. And people are making an effort, and I really love seeing that. Um, and I'm, I'm trying to make an effort in my own research so that uh, we can be more inclusive. But it wasn't just in design. It was in painters. It was, no. you know... Um, it was kind of all around. So these women who were, um, or, or anyone uh, that was, anyway, it's just a really um, important part of, I think it's good to have people who we can look at and say, hey, that person's like me. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think so too. And that's the thing that I've been noticing is I have so many female students and I'm starting to get um, students, you know, from, from other cultures and other, you know, I have a lot of African-American students, but I have a lot of Indian students and a, and a lot of, um, you know, Asian students, whether if they're Chinese or Japanese or Taiwanese or, or wherever. And I want to share with them somebody that looks like them who's from their cultures and show them that different cultures have a design history as well. And they, can't, they don't have to just know this westernized or americanized version of design history so i'm trying to break into that and that's been one of my goals for a while and I've, I've, it's been a struggle um you know if you if you have a, a curriculum in place it can be hard to get in there and make changes we tend to you know make maybe small changes here or there but a complete overhaul can be very exhausting yeah for sure well, Mandy, I can't wait for tomorrow, but I want to make sure, just in case you didn't know, uh, Mandy teaches at the University of Central, o right? Central Oklahoma. Yes. yes University. Uh, so I'm going to put that. Uh, and if you want to take this class is not online, but yesterday's class was online. And if you wanted to take it, you can go there. You can also follow her at on Instagram at Unicorn Loves Trouble. Do you want to give us the background behind that? And then you can also email her at ahorton4 at uco.edu. Yeah. Um, I, I just love unicorns and horses. So that's, that's the little girl in me picked that, that oh, title. Nice. Okay. Well, I had a couple questions. I have so many notes from today. Sure, Look sure. at this is, I didn't oh. take many yesterday. I have a ton for today. Okay. So, um, I, there's just two questions today. Here's another question I'm sure that you get a lot. Uh, in your history classes, you have students write research papers, correct? Oh, absolutely. Why? Why is learning how to write a research paper important to a designer? I am glad you asked this question, and I was prepared to answer it. Oh, great. So I have been thinking about this for a long time and what the answer is. And I have to say there's this really great new book out by Natalia Ilian, I think is how you say her name called Writing for the Design Mind. And in the introduction, she answers it so succinctly. Um, but I've been thinking a lot about this too. Um, first of all, like the problem isn't just why research papers, but why writing? I get a lot of students who don't want to write. They, they, they think they're terrible writers. They're afraid of it. They don't want to 
they don't want to do that. Why should we have to write as designers? We're never going to write anything, mm -hmm. right? Uh, that's wrong. You're going to write client emails. You're going to write proposals. You're going to write bids. You're going to write all kinds of things. So, so summaries, writing summaries. Yes. 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 Any, anything. And, and you need to practice the, those skills and know how to write an appropriate email to a client as opposed to your, you know, your, your friends and buddies. I get emails from students that are in like text speak and I don't speak text speak. So I'm, I tell them, you know, you need to rephrase this and get back to me, but knowing when to write one way versus another way is important too. Being able to take a deep dive into research is, I think, a big benefit to designers. Even if you never use that skill again, knowing what a quality resource is versus not a quality resource and being able to defend your resources is very important. Um, you know, you might get, students may get asked to design a logo for a business that they've never heard of before, and you're going to need to do research on that. So know how to do good research. And while Wikipedia is a great resource for quick knowledge to know something it's not a great resource you know for for depth you know it, they could have anybody can contribute to it so there's not a lot of um quality there but the other thing and, and natalia Ilian really talks about this in her book is that if you really pay attention to who the big names are in design if you want to be a leader in design you have to write mm. michael beirut jessica Helfand. Uh, Paula Shear, they're all writers. Uh, Milton Glaser, they've all been writers. Paul Rand, you know, they, they, they wrote on design. They created the dialogue that everyone else was talking about. So if you want to partake in the dialogue and if you want to be a leader in that dialogue, you need to be able to write. Um, and this is an excellent resource, highly recommended. I'm going to be adopting. Closer so I can see how to spell her last name. That, or maybe just spell it because it's in white type. I can't read it. Yeah. Um, it's I L Y I N. So I'm going to be adopting this book in my history classes this semester, um, and, and utilizing some of it's got a lot of exercises in there. And she talks about things like, yeah, you're not very good at writing because you haven't practiced. You weren't a very good designer when you started either, but you started practicing and you got better. So she wants, uh, Carrie wants you to hold it up one more time. So she okay, one more time. Shut. Oops. Just the whole thing. Yeah. And, uh, Kent actually put a link in on Amazon. So, Oh, thank you, Kent. I know. Kent's awesome. Oh, oh, she sees the link now. Okay. So the other question was, I feel like some people, <laughs> I feel like some people think we sit by the pool all day in the summer as professors. Um, and you and I are pretty busy in the summer. How do you fill your time in the summer? So I, um, it, you know, each summer is different. Sometimes I teach summer classes. I'm trying to move away from that so I can focus even more on my research in the summer. So this summer I spent some time preparing for this podcast. Um, <laughs> I've also, I had to redesign an online course, my history of design. Every four years, our university requires us to redesign and redevelop our classes. So that went through that this summer and I just submitted that for approval. So fingers crossed that it gets, um, that I'm done with it. Um, I'm also working on some of my own research projects. So I'm working to develop a podcast on design history where really it, 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 the, the goal is to explore some of the unheard stories from design history or lesser heard design st stories from design history. Uh, so exploring things maybe outside of the canon of design history. 
I'm calling it the, um, the incomplete design history podcast or incomplete design history. Um, so hopefully we'll have that up and running. I'm hoping to have a couple of sample episodes by the end of this summer, um, but maybe later this fall or early next year, we'll have the full seasons out. You're getting lots of people. Ooh, I want that. So, so can you just explain, I know what this is, but can you explain what Canon means just in case people don't yeah. know what Canon is? So the term Canon actually comes from um, the church, Canon law and things like that. It's like the, the guiding rules or whatever. Um, and, but a pro, when you apply it to design history, basically it's like the main people that are talked about, like the fundamentals. And, and there's a lot of talk about, um, you know, there, that there's this negativity associated with the Canon. And I get that because the same people are talked about over and over and over again. And that's the concern. I get that. But there is, I think there's a fundamental structure for a reason. And I think we can't abandon that. So if we talked about design history as Americans without talking about Paul Rand, that would be weird. Um, there, some of those people are in place for a reason, but at the same time, we can't ignore the contributions of people that are often overlooked. Um, there is something to be learned from everyone who's contributed to design history. Um, does that answer your question? Did I go off the rails? A no, I bit? think that's good. I, it's okay. an established system sort of, and yes. Um, yes. It's accepted that this is this, and this does happen in lots of things. You know, we, the humans thought the world was flat. That was the canon, the accepted yeah. truth, yeah. right? So not to say there aren't other things, but they have to be proven, I think, or they have to be added in or, or tested. And I just think that that this is just another one of those things. Yes. All right. So tomorrow, guys, it'll be 1946 to today. Yeah, well, 1945. Okay, 1945 to today. Yes. I mean, not, well, it won't be today, today. It'll be yesterday, today. Anyway, whatever, you know what I mean. <laughs> Um, to current 2019. Anyway, so I appreciate you guys tuning in. We hopefully will, uh, I'm going to go ahead and stop. So we'll hit like and subscribe. And again, always, this, no. Boop. Of course I should probably. Hey everybody, today's podcast is brought to you by Audible. Mm. Why can't I say that? What? Mm -hmm. I guess. Anyway. Boop. Today's, mm, again, messed up. Boop. <laughs> okay, I can do this. Today's podcast. Oh, I forgot to say hello. Mm. Boop. Somebody's calling me. I can't talk right now. Um, oh, bookers, I need to have the thing. Okay, yeah, got it. Okay. My favorite way to build websites is with the Elementor plugin that works with almost any theme, making almost any theme invincible. WordPress. Um, did I say that? Anyway, uh, mm. any WordPress theme invisible. Invisible. <laughs> Okay, that's not right. I need to. Okay, I, I'm in. <laughs> I don't know if I can do this this quickly. Okay.